This is the Rounds Table. Hi, Rounds Table listeners. We would like to take a minute to ask for your help. We're doing a study to try to understand why people listen to medical podcasts. We would love to interview you. This would take no more than about 20 to 30 minutes of your time, which would be compensated with an Amazon gift card. How about that? We've already interviewed quite a few people, and we just need to do a few more interviews to complete the study. We are especially looking for people who live outside of Toronto or people who practice in non-academic settings. If you are interested, please contact us via email or Twitter. I can be reached at K-I-E-R-A-N-Q-U-I-N-N at gmail.com or our good old host Amol Verma, A-M-O-L dot A dot Verma, V-E-R-M-A at gmail.com or You can tweet at us at Rounds Table, and we'll get in contact with you. We would really appreciate it, and thanks so much for your help. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests, Dr. Steve Morgan, who is an expert in pharmaceutical policy and produces research that helps governments balance these sometimes competing goals. He is a professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. He's also leader of Canada's pharmaceutical policy research collaboration and founder of Pharmacare 2020 a campaign to promote evidence-informed conversation about the future of prescription drug coverage in Canada. My other guest is Dr. Dan Raza, family physician at St. Michael's Hospital and associate professor at the University of Toronto. He sits on the board of directors of Canada's Docs for Medicare, and he has a special interest in pharmacare and health services information. Welcome, Steve and Dan. Thank you for joining us on the rounds table today. Thanks, Gary. Thank you for having us. Okay, so let's get right into it. Today we're going to talk about the potential of a national pharmacare program in Canada. And I understand, Dan, this is a timely discussion. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is? Yeah, thanks, Jared. So you're absolutely right. This is quite a timely discussion. You know, what's not timely is the problem. Our Medicare system, you know, since it's come to be, has excluded outpatient prescription drugs for a very long time. So this problem has been with us for a while. But what's really exciting for the past couple of years is that there's been more and more talk around this issue. People are raising its profile. There's been some fantastic peer-reviewed studies that have come out putting forth uh, solutions of which, you know, Steve has been one of the authors. And it's uh, making it to the levels of government as well. There's a House of Commons committee in Ottawa studying it. The Health Minister in Ontario has been speaking about the importance of uh, national pharmacare. So it's, it's not just something we're seeing as a problem in the clinic room anymore. It's on the lips of policymakers too. Great. So it sounds like not only is it prevalent in the news and in the minds of physicians, but at the national and political level, we're seeing efforts to evaluate it and potentially introduce a new type of pharmacare in Canada. Is that fair to say? That's the hope. Great. And Steve, uh, any comments or anything else you'd like to add about the current state of national pharmacare in Canada? As uh, Dan had mentioned, this is an old problem. Actually, it's been talked about by commissions on the healthcare system in Canada dating back to the 1960s. In fact, the original roadmap for Canadian Medicare was one that explicitly included prescription drug coverage through a Canada Health Act-like mechanism of federal and provincial cooperation. And that was recommended back in the 1960s. Again, repeatedly over different commissions of inquiry, this has come up. But now more than ever before, I think we're seeing some traction on this issue, possibly because the problems of lack of coverage have become ever more clear. 
And also, I think the economic consequences of having fragmented Canada's purchasing power for pharmaceuticals are now absolutely undeniable. Governments at all levels in Canada now realize that we pay some of the highest prices for medicines in the world. And that means, frankly, we have less resources available for providing other kinds of healthcare. Great. So it seems that I'm surrounded by two individuals who support the need for national pharmacare. And hopefully, you can offer some perspective today on some of the challenges that this might pose and some of the alternative options that have been examined for our listeners to help them understand sort of what is the current state of pharmacare in Canada? Why is this issue so important? I think Steve, you've already alluded in, Dan, both to some of the importance of having a national pharmacare program. But uh, Dan, if you could perhaps start us off and just sort of outline what does drug coverage mean in Canada and what are the sort of the different types of drug coverage Canadians receive? So the way we pay for prescription drugs is very different than how we pay for doctors and hospitals. So, you know, as most people know, doctor and hospital payment is single payer. It's the government. But as soon as you take a prescription from the hospital or from your family doc's office, you go to your community pharmacy and you try and fill it, things look very, very different. And it's a different system depending on where you live. But in general, there's four ways that people pay for the drugs that they need. There's means tested. So if you're poor enough, if you're on social assistance, provinces will cover the majority of the cost of your prescription drugs. Okay. If you're old enough, so an age test, 65 or older in Ontario, you get a drug card and you get access to the same uh, drug list for prescriptions. Or if you're lucky enough to not only have a job, but a decent job with benefits, then you have a job link drug plan. And whatever insurance plan you have for your employer will cover you too. So those are the three, but then there's the fourth. And that's for the many people who don't fall in any of those categories. And those are people who are dipping into their savings account, into their pockets, maxing out their credit card balances to control their hypertension, their diabetes, to deal with whatever bacterial infections they need uh, antibiotics for. And so if we have these three different systems plus this additional concerning uh, lack of drug coverage for a proportion of individuals, I guess sort of my two questions are, A, do we have any idea how large this proportion of individuals who are paying out of pocket are? And B, why aren't they covered by one of the other three services that the government is paying for or privately? We do have some data around that. So there was a CMAJ study in 2012, and actually Steve was one of one of the authors, so he will call me on everything I get wrong, I'm sure, uh, that looked at some of the cost barriers. And some of the numbers cited were that 1 in 10 Canadians don't take prescription medications because of costs, and 1 in 4 without health insurance at all aren't able to afford prescription drugs. So th- those are really big numbers. And I think the other thing that's really important to recognize is this illusion around job-linked drug plans. I think most people who are looking at this issue for the first time or they don't have personal experience assume that if you have a job, that you have drug coverage. But just last year, the Wellesley Institute, which is a research institute in Toronto, put out this study looking at drug plans and jobs in Ontario. And they found that, you know, if you're one of the lucky few making $100,000 or more, 94% of those folks have a private prescription drug plan. But if you were making $10,000 a year or less, only 17% of those workers had access to a drug plan. And the people who were disproportionately affected were part-time workers, women, and young people. So, Steve, in your experience studying this issue, which I've read a few different publications that you've put out into highly respected journals, why do they slip through the cracks? Why is there not coverage for somebody who is 
not making $100,000 a year, but then theoretically does not have enough income to pay for their drugs? Why is there not a government program for these individuals? Yeah, and that's the ultimate question. I think that's what we're here chatting about today. And I think that's what the medical profession and other actors are wondering about in the Canadian context. Let's just be clear, there is no comparable healthcare system in the world that doesn't ensure universal coverage of at least essential medicines, if not all medicines that span the various therapeutic areas that you might need to treat a patient for. Why don't we have it in this country? It comes down partly to politics of our country and our federation. It's difficult to pass national legislation in Canada, given the fact that provinces, for the most part, are responsible for healthcare delivery, and yet it'd be the federal government that has the greatest opportunity to help the provinces afford to take the big step into a universal drug plan. But another actor or issue here is that when Canada has a fragmented system that results in high costs, it means that somebody is making a lot of money. And there are actors in this sector who are profiting from the status quo. That we have probably about 20% of our population without adequate drug coverage is not a problem to a manufacturer or to the pharmacy retailers who sell medicines, provided that the remaining 80% of people with good coverage are paying premium prices. One of the things that we've found internationally is that the cost of medicines are so much lower in universal systems of prescription financing that everyone can afford to have access to medicines and the overall expenditure is quite low. If you're a stakeholder that sells medicines in this country, that's a scary prospect because essentially by stitching the gaps, finding a way to bring everybody into a Medicare-like pharmacare system, it is likely we would significantly reduce costs, but therein lies the political opposition. Right. So it sounds like there are multiple reasons as a potential barrier with individual parties with conf conflicts of interest in introducing a national pharmacare plan. There will be opposition. It's part of politics. It's part of any sector where you're engaging in reform. So we have to recognize that and we have to find ways to overcome that. But I want to be clear that it's not you know, saying these are somehow value judgments about these actors. It's just the reality of a sector where people are in business to do a particular activity. Right. And then we see it's sometimes uncomfortable interface between that of business and then that of healthcare and providing medicines and care to patients. I agree with Steve's assessment that there are winners and losers in this. But I think one thing that we often don't talk about, there's actually a lot of synergy between a single-payer drug plan and business. So we talked about how retailers and drug manufacturers are not fans of a single-player drug plan. But the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, municipalities across the country from Toronto to Vancouver, who employ you know, a whole lot of people, have actually issued open letters to the Minister of Health, to Mr. Philpott, to the Prime Minister's office, calling for the sort of system that Steve and I often talk about because it represents huge savings for them. And in fact, uh, there's even been a Chamber of, of Commerce out in BC. Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the Surrey Chamber of Commerce. Well, the Surrey Board of Trade actually led a motion at the British Columbia Chamber of Commerce, so the full provincial Chamber of Commerce delegation, and they passed a motion in favor of a universal publicly run pharmacare program, specifically because they see that in general, businesses actually have a financial interest in having the government keep the cost of medicines in check and to make sure that no matter who employs an individual, they're covered. Because again, there is this issue, which we alluded to earlier about this belief that, well, people can get their insurance through the private sector. 
if that's the case, of course, that means that two things. One is that either a combination of businesses and, and unions have to pay for their drug costs out of the pockets or the profits of businesses and unions. And secondly, it assumes that all types of workers will always be able to have coverage or, turning it on its head, all types of employers will be able to offer it. And it turns out that if you're a small or medium-sized business in Canada, the potential cost of offering a drug benefit to employees, particularly if you have employees with chronic illness either themselves or in their family, that's crippling and it can be a big challenge for businesses. So we're seeing a growing number of businesses writ large across all sectors of the economy saying, actually, it would be better for the health and well-being of our employees and our communities but also better for our bottom lines if we decided to do a public drug plan much like virtually every comparable country that Canada might look at. Thank you, guys. So I want to really get into what a national pharmacare plan in Canada would look like and some of the potential savings. Dan, if you could just quickly for our listeners who are not familiar with some of the hard facts around what drugs cost in Canada. Can you just provide us with sort of an overview of how much are Canadians spending on drugs? Then we can get into sort of what potential savings are there with prescribing those in a different kind of way. For people who want to dig into the, to the data, you can pull up the reports from CAHI, the Canadian Institute for Health Information. And, you know, if you look at their recent data, globally, we're spending about $29 billion every year on prescription drugs. A quarter of that is out of pocket, so people dipping into their savings accounts. 35% is through private insurance, and the rest, 41%, is through public insurance. And those are the sorts of means-tested or age-tested plans that I was talking about. So it's a good chunk of change, $29 billion. The model that many people have been talking about, the single-payer national model, I find really appealing because it not just expands access it actually reduces the amount of money we could potentially spend as well. So it brings down that $29 billion pretty substantially. So Steve, I'm going to ask you about some of the breakdown of the cost savings because this was elegantly outlined in your CMAG article from 2015 entitled Estimated Costs of Universal Public Coverage of Prescription Drugs in Canada. But I just wanted to touch base, Dan, really quickly. So what are some of the ways in which drugs are purchased in Canada currently? And then Steve can, you know, elaborate on how a national pharmacare plan would potentially change that and the savings that we'd have. Great question. And actually, there's some good news on this front. So historically, uh, what's happened uh, is each purchaser of drugs, so whether they be a public plan in Saskatchewan or Ontario or a private drug company, each purchaser will negotiate their own price for a particular drug with a drug manufacturer. But the catch is, once they negotiate it, they often can't share that price with other people trying to buy the same drugs. So that can be a huge issue for places like small provinces like Saskatchewan. They don't have the same purchasing power as folks out in BC or Ontario do. So when we approach a drug company, try to get a reasonable price for you know the next blockbuster drug, we can't. Or we can get a better price because there's so many of us. But we can't tell Saskatchewan how much we're paying. Mm. So when Saskatchewan goes, they end up paying a much higher price. Now, the good news on that front is provinces have begun to collaborate through the uh, Pan-Canadian Purchasing Agreement, which is a long name for, I think, a really important step. 
And that's provinces coming together, pooling their purchasing power to try and break down some of this asymmetry in the market. Could I just add, though, it's important for audiences to understand that the Canadian provinces and the federal government's drug plans currently fund less than half of pharmaceutical purchases, in fact, less than half of even prescription drug purchases in any jurisdiction. So they are coming together, but they don't have nearly the buying power of a universal plan. And the reason is, as mentioned before, all of our public plans are little patchwork systems meant to help certain populations but not actually taking responsibility for purchasing medicines on behalf of everybody. So this Pan-Canadian Purchasing Alliance is a great step forward, but it's coordinating fairly weak buyers in every province into a single set of weak buyers nationally. What we would like to see is strong purchasers, strong buyers in every province and at a national level. Hmm. Sort of a a bigger picture kind of uh, overview of how drugs could be purchased in Canada. I just want to make an analogy because I think it's helpful for people to consider this. If you buy a bottle of wine or a beer or spirits at a liquor store in Ontario or Alberta or British Columbia or elsewhere in Canada, you're actually buying something that's sold by an individual outlet, but it was actually purchased by your provincial liquor distributor in the context of Ontario. It's the LCBO. What people probably know and might recall is that the LCBO is the world's single largest purchaser of wine and spirits. So as a consequence, the government of Ontario gets the best prices for wine of any buyer on earth. And that's great for Ontarians because it means that any markup in terms of taxes when you buy the bottle at a retail outlet, that becomes revenue to the government. But the key thing here is that it's because it's the only buyer and it's the only distributor of alcohol to any outlet that you might buy from in Ontario. So what really the the comparable models of pharmacare in systems around the world that you might compare ourselves to, whether it's the United Kingdom, virtually all the Scandinavian countries, several European countries, Australia, New Zealand, All of those systems have essentially a single national formulary and therefore the equivalent of the LCBO, but for prescription drugs. $29 billion is a lot of money spent every year on drugs. If we said the population of Canada is 30 million, children included in that, that's about $1,000 a person. How would this national pharmacare system save us money and what kind of money are we looking at saving? Yeah. So if you assume that a universal system did a couple of things, one is that it got prices down because it has more muscle in the global market for price negotiation. And then secondly, you assume that people are going to buy more medicines because they are now more able to do so because the government is paying at least for the primary cost of it. There might be a co-payment in a system, but they would certainly have much better coverage. If you do all the math and you take fairly conservative assumptions, it looks like Canada as a whole would save about $7 billion on the analysis that we had last done was on $22 billion in total sales. So approximately a 30 to 35% savings in terms of the total spend on pharmaceuticals. And paradoxically, because governments already spend about 40 to 50%, depending on the province, of the total cost of medicines through public programs, plus governments at all levels, including the university or hospital level, where you are ultimately a taxpayer-funded employee, governments actually pay for your benefits of public sector workers. And that turns out to be about $3 billion worth of total public investment in private drug plans nationally. 
So if you factor all that stuff into the equation, it turns out the net cost to government of actually having a universal drug program that would save on the order of $7 billion nationally is probably in the neighborhood of $1 to $2 billion. In the CMAJ article we published last year, the gross cost is higher. It's about $4 billion, several billion of the savings that occur in the non-public system actually are savings to the taxpayer anyhow, as I said, because people like myself as a university professor, I have private drug coverage that is actually taxpayer financed. So in that article, again, for listeners who missed the reference, it's CMAG 2015 by Morgan et al. on cost of drugs to Canadians. He indicated that it would cost about a billion dollars to implement this new system and that we would see an increase in $4 billion in cost from the reasons you just sort of outlined those who are not covered all of a sudden being covered, or those you know who are not filling drug prescriptions all of a sudden starts to fill more drug prescriptions. Does that account into your net $7 billion savings overall? So the net $7 billion is really truly $7 billion. And that's billion with a B. So this is real money that would come from a system that was achieving, again, relatively conservative assumptions. These are assumptions about achieving average prices in comparable countries if you were to compare Canada to somewhat more successful, maybe arguably perhaps aggressively well-managed pharmaceutical systems, even just looking south of the border to the U.S. Veterans Administration health benefit, you would actually find that the potential savings from a single-payer system are even greater. The U.S. VA, for instance, spends less than half what we do per capita on providing a comprehensive drug benefit for all veterans, and yet it's right here in North America. They do that by bulk purchasing. They do that by a, a well-clinically-managed formulary, and they do it without actually charging co-payments to their patients. This is a system that if it's covered, it's covered for all. For those listeners who don't quite understand the healthcare budget in Canada, in theory, we're saying that $7 billion saved in one of the three pillars of the most expensive aspects of healthcare, that is the physician services budget, that's effectively salaries to physicians costs of drugs in, in Ontario, um, as well as sort of hospital provision and care overall, your utilization of the healthcare system. So the drugs account for a major portion of that. Theoretically, those savings could be transmitted elsewhere in the healthcare system. That's a point that was raised by the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce or the Board of Trade in Surrey, British Columbia, who has championed this idea that it's in business interest to have public pharmacare. Her name is Anita Huberman. And one of the reasons that she argues for this is that all of that savings on the private side, there's about $8 billion in private spending savings, some of which is government savings. But on the whole, there's a significant amount of savings for private employers, probably on the neighborhood of about $5 billion a year. She makes the case that employers and unions could then sit down and reinvest that savings in other forms of care. Maybe it's better mental health services for their employees. Maybe it's better coverage of things like dental and vision care for their employees. There is already talk about how Canada, even on the private side, would reinvest the savings in better care and better health support for Canadians. Good to know that those savings would be transmitted to consumers in some way. I appreciate the fact that you brought up kind of the three big ways that we spend money on healthcare, hospitals, doctors, and drugs. And for me, what really stands out on prescription drugs is how quickly costs have been rising. So since the 80s, we've been paying more and more for prescription drugs. And between those three you know, areas I just talked about, it's usually been the third in terms of the, the total amount spent. 
But since 1997, it's eclipsed physician spending. Now it's only second to hospital spending when you look at the rank order of how much money we're spending. It's taking up more and more of a share of our healthcare spending. We're relying on drugs increasingly as the burden of chronic disease becomes larger. To me, this conversation could not be more urgent. So I want to shift the conversation now. What an implementation of a national pharmacare program might look like? And more importantly, sort of what are the chances of it happening over the next foreseeable future? And if you could both provide some of your, your perspectives on what are the major barriers right now and why? Like this, to me, I mean, this sounds like a wonderful solution. It can't be as candy-appled as it sounds. There must be some, some reason underneath it all that we don't have a national farm care program already in Canada. Maybe you guys can, can comment on that for me, uh, Dan, if you want to start. You know, I think we've reached a point on this in this conversation, I mean, not between the three of us, but, you know, writ large, where people can't deny that this is a problem anymore. Even some of the insurance companies and drug companies, they're not talking about maintaining the status quo. Even they're talking about universal access. To me, where the trick is, is how this conversation is going to be framed going forward. Is it going to be the single payer system that many of us have been talking about for a very long time? Or are people going to start to frame catastrophic coverage as some kind of step towards universal coverage? Are they going to talk about something like, you know, the Affordable Care Act in, in the U.S. where everyone is mandated to have a private plan? It's actually very similar to what they have in Quebec. Is that what we're going to hear about more? And for me, that's where the devil in the details is. And I think that's where the conversation is heading. And Steve, do you see any potential drawbacks? To be completely honest, relative to what we have now, there are virtually no drawbacks. There is a political cost to doing it because you have to overcome stakeholder opposition. And that's never pleasant. And I'm sure that governments at the federal and provincial levels right now are worried about that. They're worried about, wait a second, every bit of evidence points in a direction that means we have to take on some very powerful, very well-resourced interests. But once you get there, once you've done what you might need to do in terms of creating a coherent public pharmacare system that's well integrated with our Medicare system as we know it, the drawbacks are minimum. And let me be clear, I, I say this having for the last now 11 years, I've hosted annual meetings of pharmaceutical policymakers from about 15 different countries around the world. I bring Canadians with me, obviously, because I'm a Canadian, and we meet with policymakers who run the systems around the world. All systems face challenges. They all face pressures with rising drug costs, the incredibly high prices that manufacturers sometimes at least ask for their medicines. But every system that has a coherent national approach to negotiation and formulary decision-making ends up, at the end of the day, being better off. Their patients have better access to medicines on the whole, and as a system, their healthcare providers are better essentially protected against having the drug budget eat the lunch of other healthcare providers. So downsides compared to systems around the world, there's virtually none. Comparable systems have better access to medicines, lower total costs of medicines, better systems for even monitoring prescribing appropriateness in use because medicines are better integrated with the rest of the system. So Dan or Steve, whoever, whoever wants to take the lead on this one, where are we at right now? How far off are we from looking at the introduction of a national pharmacare plan in Canada? I'll start with that. And then Steve, you can pick up the pieces. You know, the, the last federal election to me was a real opportunity to try and push the issue. 
You know, there were some parties that actually explicitly identified expanding coverage in their platform. The liberals didn't. The liberals had language around reducing prescription drug costs, and that was reflected in the mandate letter that the the prime minister issued to, to Minister Philpott. So while we've seen a lot of language around that particular part of drugs, we haven't seen a whole lot more about expanding coverage. But nonetheless, there is a health committee that is made up of members of parliament in Ottawa, and they're studying this issue further. They've had a number of expert witnesses testify. Steve, I believe you were there. I know some folks from Canadian Doctors for Medicare were there as well, trying to raise a profile of this once again. And I think it's, it's being talked about in the halls of parliament. What's going to be really important is how good the rest of us are at holding policymakers' feet to the fire. And, you know, we're starting to do that more and more. So uh, after the federal election, I think within a month, there were 300 folks, uh, Steve and I included in that, who wrote an open letter to the prime minister calling for universal coverage. There was a, a campaign to get municipalities on board. So I mentioned that earlier, places like Vancouver, Toronto, and Hamilton, municipalities representing 6.5 million people have signed on. Number of medical organizations have the College of Family Physicians of Canada, Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. There's a broad consensus in civil society and the medical community. We just have to keep on pushing and making it really hard for MPs and MPPs to say no to this. Steve, is this an opportunity in history where you know Lester B. Pearson introduced universal health care coverage? Is this an opportunity we face now that the next major step forward in health care coverage in Canada could be made? Politicians at the federal and provincial levels have some decisions to make over the next matter of months. And that is, do we go now? Do the provinces and the federal government work together? And does someone essentially make a major legacy on this issue right away? I've got a paper coming out in the Healthcare Management Forum in a couple of months, which we look at the politics and history of pharmacare and kind of talk about why we haven't moved on these recommendations that have been in multiple national commissions. And it's a bit of a sober or maybe even somber paper because we do articulate that the chances of action right now are limited largely by a long political game that the federal Liberal Party is playing. The long game here is actually for the Trudeau government to set up the second term promise of Pharmacare. So it goes into their next election platform as they are the government ready to make this happen. That's not a bad idea if you thought about it in a purely logical, apolitical sense that the government would spend time right now getting a number of things in place that you need to have in place in order to run a pharmacare system. The only problem with it is that Canada is a unique federation where provincial governments have responsibility for health and the federal government essentially does not have much responsibility for health. And right now, at this particular point in time, you actually have liberal or progressive governments in, I believe it's seven of the 10 Canadian provinces. Most importantly, you have liberal or progressive governments in Quebec, Ontario, and Alberta. The problem with the liberals' long game of waiting until the next election is that you might not have liberal or progressive governments in any three, any of those three provinces when Trudeau goes up for his second term. And as a consequence, if the Liberal government's long political game is to pass Pharmacare sometime after the 2019 election, they may not find that they have provinces willing to cooperate. So there's a real tension. And this is where, going back to Dan's comments, and I guess my comments earlier, the real thing that's needed right now is for citizens, health professionals, companies across the country, unions, 
basically all actors in civil society to step up and say, we've got your back, we're supporting a government, we want a government to do this, we want this federal liberal government to make this part of their plan essentially now, rather than waiting until a moment of opportunity that may not be ideal in, say, four more years. Hmm, a very complex problem. I want to thank Dr. Steve Morgan and Dr. Dan Raza for joining us today. Any final comments from either one of you that you'd like to make to our listeners? I'll just say, you know, Medicare in Saskatchewan was rolled out in 1962, and it only took four years until there was federal legislation for the same. This is a longstanding problem, but we don't have to wait decades to fix this. Steve, any final comments from you? Yeah, I would just add that I think that this issue is one that is eminently feasible. It's possible to do pharmacare because every comparable country in the world proves that it can be done. Well, thank you guys both for those comments. It sounds like now might be the time to act. And for our listeners, now might be the time to get involved. Please send us your comments. Personally, you can reach me at Kieran Quinn, K-I-E-R-A-N-Q-U-I-N-N at gmail.com or through the rounds table on Twitter or Facebook. I want to spend uh, just two minutes here thanking our guests today, Dr. Steve Morgan from British Columbia and the University of British Columbia, a national expert on pharmacare in Canada, and Dr. Dan Raza, a national advocate in pharmacare from the University of Toronto. They've both taken time out of their very busy clinical schedules to provide their expertise and perspectives today. So a wholehearted thank you both for joining us. And we hope we can talk again on the rounds table sometime in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Kieran. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?